Hi there, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today is the 15th of March, the Ides of March, 2020. The Ides of March, of course, being a, <clears throat> a date to remember because that's when the great Julius Caesar was horribly assassinated by the senators of Rome because they considered him to be a dictator. Although uh, there was some question as to what the real motives were behind that assassination. Um, I consider it a, 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 a unfortunate occurrence because I actually think Julius Caesar was a, an incredibly good leader. And I don't know that it would have really led to an um, autocracy or a real dictatorship had he lived. Because he was on his way, as you know, to uh, conduct business elsewhere away from Rome. But at any rate, uh, it is the 15th of March, and this is Dr. Dan Guerra, and I've been talking about epistemology and metaphysics. And I'm going to continue that, and we're going to jump right in, which is my want. So, in concrete terms, existence is an interpretation of our experience. It's the result, in my view, of the event-driven movements afforded by our faculties of reason. What are those faculties of reason? The imagination, the understanding, and, and what populates the imagination are ideas. What populates the faculty of understanding are concepts. What also populates the imagination are relative sense data, otherwise known as intuitions, which must be deciphered and interpreted through contemplation. And contemplation is the term I'm using for thinking. And of course, that's another component of our faculties of reason, the thinking process itself. So, the reason I'm talking about this is that when you interpret experience, it's a result of an event-driven movement. And that those movements are afforded by our faculties of reason. And with that perspective, I hope that you can obtain, like I do, that existence then, in that sentence and in that, in the in the proposition that that sentence is trying to make, it clearly informs that existence is not a predicate. Existence cannot be a predicate because existence cannot stand alone. Existence is an interpretation of experience, but in and of itself, it doesn't exist on its own. Existence cannot exist without something that is existing. So it can't occur before it can be a predicate. But that's important as I weave the rest of my story. So my awareness of experience in the world requires what I call a built-in capacity. That whole thing about your mind is set up, genetically programmed, right? Environmentally and probably evolutionarily trained to be able to deal with incoming data, processing it, generating concepts from it which are abstractions of those realities, and then allowing those concepts to be turned into um, 
categories of thought, categories of contemplation that allow you to apprehend all new and incoming information, right? And in so doing, then, we, we use them a priori, and we synthesize all that information a priori through the lens of our reason, okay? So that's where we're at right now. So again, my awareness of the experience of the world requires this built-in capacity for what I say instantiating space and time. Space is a geometrical consideration, right? There's three dimensions. And then time is like an arithmetic dimension because it's sequential, right? And that's how we exist. We exist in, in three-dimensional space through time, right? So I argue that they occur both simultaneously, space and time, and endojectively. And that's a new term I, I coined a, a couple of months ago. I don't like the word subjective when we're talking about metaphysics, because subjective is too easily misinterpreted as a term that's more, more associated with an attitudinal sense. When we say subjective uh, interpretation of something, often we're saying, well, it's that person's opinion, right? I don't want that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the metaphysical meaning of it, um, which basically means that your mind is involved in it. So that's what subjective use is mean means in the metaphysical sense. And the opposite of that are the the um, uh, diametrically opposed concept from that is objective. And in uh, the the understanding that I have for the metaphysics of objective, that means something that is real or that is considered, say, truth, because that's how people usually use that term, that doesn't have anything to do with mind. And I said last time that that was really hard to try to figure out how that could exist, right? If it doesn't have anything to do with mind, how can you have objective truths? Because whenever there's an objective truth, someone thought it. And in fact, you're thinking about it when you're deciding, yeah, I think that's objectively true, you see? So... I coined the term endojective and exojective. Endojective means it's an internal hermeneutical movement, right? an inward movement that each existing individual has that says, yes, I own what I say. I own what I believe. And so that's an endojective movement. I argue that all truths, and in fact, all things that we used to call objective realities, have to be endojectively organized in our mind. If we don't believe them, even if we call them objective truths, then they are not truths at all. We have to believe them, and that's part of epistemology. I'm using the kind of uh, mid-20th century understanding of epistemology's uh, product, which is knowledge, which is defined as, knowledge is defined as, justified true belief. All three components, JTP, uh, JTB, have to be organized around what we call um, events of knowledge. Okay, so Sammy said all that. Now you know what I mean by endojectively. And that's a term I, I term I have coined, I've created. So I propose that they are neither existing nor existence itself, that is space and time. And I conclude uh, from my, my endojective reasoning 
that space and time are merely the means by which I behold the world. That's a really important thing. Merely doesn't mean, oh, it's not such a big deal. It's very, very important. But what I mean merely is it doesn't tell us about reality. So because it's the means by which the transcendental process, the means by which you acquire something and what you're acquiring is the world that you're you're embedded within. I call space and time transcendentals. You could also call them basic forms. So let me give an example how I think this works. <clears throat> when you calculate the velocity and the position of an outer shell electron of a common element like, say, oxygen, remember that there are usually, well, there are always supposed to be equal numbers of electrons and protons. You know, the protons are much bigger so protons don't just have charge, which is positive for protons, negative for electrons. They also have mass, right? And they basically, the number of protons is basically what dictates the different elements, right? Their mass. It's a very important thing. Whatever number of protons are, are going to be equal to the number of electrons. All right. And you know when a proton de decays, uh, what it decays into, right? Uh, well, anyway, we'll get back to that later. All right. So... Consider the outer shell of a common element like oxygen. You obtain a differential equation that will resolve, when you think about that common, uh, when you think about that electron, you're going to get a differential equation that resolves into what's called a spherical harmonic function. So what you have in oxygen actually are two unpaired electrons in the outer valence shell, and they're associated with that nucleus of oxygen. Yet we cannot distinguish those two unpaired electrons in any way except to say that they are two distinct, basically, waveforms, right? Or you could call them placeholders. So we say that it is an anti-symmetric in that electron one is, can be called an anti-symmetric, but electron two, which is just as likely to be electron one, is symmetric to it, right? So they are indistinguishable and yet non-identical. In space and time, or in space-time, and we say space-time because space and time are always intimately linked one to the other, and that's how we understand relativity. Space-time were itself an objective reality, objective reality at the level of non-metaphysics, and therefore an ontological species of some kind, right? A species of ontology, right? If that were indeed uh, the case, um, we would say that the position, velocity, and cumulative spontaneity of those electrons have to be separable, right? Because they said they're not identical, uh, yet they appear to be indistinguishable. So there must be something we can separate about them. So at the basic level of matter, this is now quantum physics, right? The basic level of matter, of course, this applies even more at subatomic thresholds in quantum states. And when we talk about things like the tripartite nature of a proton, right? The quarks that make up the proton, you know, that those are tripartite. So all of that involves a threshold of a quantum state. So we can propose that the two electrons exist 
but we cannot interrogate space or time itself to explain the phenomenon. Why can't we interrogate space or time? Because they don't exist by their own, on their own. They are a manufacture, a creation of activity of the agency of the mind. That's what I'm trying to say. Can't interrogate space or time itself to explain the phenomenon that nevertheless you know exists. So therefore I conclude, and of course tentatively, because I'm not finished with my understanding of working towards becoming better at resolving what I think the world is, never going to be done until I'm gone, that fundamental ontologies are not found in either our physical or even our metaphysical universe. Certainly not in quantum mechanics, and I've been arguing now for quite a while, if you listen to my last episode, not metaphysically. So not physically, not metaphysically. So we put these ontologies there. We put them there. And we create what I can refer to now as our ontic world. Now, if we indeed live in what is called a law-giving physical universe, and back in the pre-Socratics, it was Heraclitus that first started talking about logos, right? Or and, and then it was interpreted by the Christian theologians after go after being parsed through Plato and then Neoplatonism, Plotinus in particular, and then Augustine. Um, we make all of that then get get parsed through as saying that those are that that those laws that logos is a divine order. A divine order. That's what the logos means. Like in, for example, in John's gospel, right? So, so we say that the law-giving physical universe would only be a phenomenon of an undescribed then metaphysical universe. So I'm following Kant here, and to follow him, I'm saying the true fabric of the universe is noumenal and therefore beyond our experience, because only we only experience the phenomenal world through our sensoria. So our senses and our faculties of reason that work in combination with one another make the world experiential by means of our projection of, projection and synthesis a priori, of space-time that we're putting into it. So this discussion allows me to examine physical and metaphysical aspects of phenomena. Okay, and that's what I'm doing. It's new now. This is my movement. So there is some doubt as to the nature of time, for example, as a single entity. I have come around to this issue in both time and in space analysis or analytics, I call it. So time, I say, is the mode of becoming in the world in an ever-presenting sequential presenting in front of our sensoria and then through our neural networking, ever presenting sequential, the arithmetic association of it, experience, which comes from now. And now I'm saying is at once a an immediacy, which is fixed and then frozen, past intentioned, of the flavor of possibility, only then to transmigrate into an agentic, self-willed, unbounded uncertainty. So you see what I'm saying there? I'm saying that, that what 
time really represents is something that becomes a now. But the now itself is immediate. And yet when it's immediate, it in a way, the event is almost frozen because it becomes fixed until it's later used as what I'm calling a past intentioned possibility for the agent, which then migrates, I say transmigrates to the new mind that just was generated from the result of new experience into what I'm saying is an agentic self-willed, free choice of the will, self-willed, unbounded. There's no boundary to this in terms of phenomena, and we don't know about noumena, an unbounded uncertainty that follows both the metaphysical rules that I've been laying out and, of course, quantum mechanics, which is the physical rule. So time is a denominator, remember, going back to like Newtonian physics, for velocity. And it measures motion, right? Which then obtains the event ontology of existence. Get what I'm saying? Time is a denominator in a ratio proportion for velocity. Something's changing over time, which measures motion, of course. Typically, that's the classical Newtonian uh, first iteration, and that obtains and that, that gathers or comes to an event ontology of existence. And that's how we that that's that's how we measure our existence. Okay, so I want to make it clear that that's that that's where I'm I'm leading to. All right, I want I want it to be um, understood that. We exist not in a way that is a contradiction to what I'm saying, but that everything that I'm describing to you has to do with the agency of free will, okay? And that's the important aspect here. It's the agency of free will that we're talking about. And, and it does involve the everyday existence, okay? It does involve and associate with everyday existence. Um, so, all uh, right. Let's now examine something that's more functional to the reality of science, okay? And maybe this will allow me to be able to expand upon this. This is what I'm going to try to do here. So, with light, okay, the phenomenon of light, its velocity is taken as a constant, right? The speed of light is taken as a constant in physics. No matter pun intended, what direction you encounter it. You're heading towards it or running away from it. Right? So it moves at the same velocity if you're moving away from it or toward it relative to your position in space-time. Now that is basically Einstein's manipulation. If you, if you go through this, that's Einstein's manipulation of Maxwell's electromagnetic theory. And that's how we inherit what Einstein called special relativity. So Maxwell imagined, you go back to Maxwell now, he imagined the movement of swirling spheres as a kind of rotating series of vortices. And this goes all the way back to Anaximander and Anaxagoras, which are pre-Socratic philosophers. So rotating series of vortices, this is now Maxwell, the velocity of which when combined as one force 
becomes what he called what we see as a magnetic field. Now, the actual rate of movement becomes a rotational speed of that vortex with a direction or vector synchronized in space-time with the generated electrical current that, that, that occurs because of this rotating vector of the magnetic field. You get an electrical current. So any change in the resulting electromagnetic field would be very large, but not infinite. It's important to note here that until this time, until Maxwell's time, it was assumed that the speed of light was actually infinite. This put a speed limit on it. Anyway, his mathematical genius resulted in a calculation that was what others experimentally determined to be the non-infinite actual speed of light. So Maxwell then deduced that light was extended within the vibrations of the combined vortex. Uh, and hence, by study of, those, of the concepts that he's now generating, an analysis of the data okay, that comes out of, that, of, of all that information um, allows us to, to understand Maxwell and his vivid imagination as instantiating electromagnetic theory of matter and energy and therefore setting a speed limit on light which, of course, as I said, was used by none other than Einstein. Generate what? Generate theory of relativity. So Einstein's special theory of relativity combined this Maxwellian concept of electromagnetic field with Newton's laws of motion that we've already discussed. With one stroke of genius that I believe he obtained, one extra stroke of genius I believe he obtained by reading Immanuel Kant, and, and specifically Immanuel Kant's accounting of Copernicus's thought experiment. Now, Copernicus, who, who taught Kant, Copernicus wrote, I don't mean taught directly, I mean what Copernicus wrote. Copernicus wrote that the movement of the planets and hence the passing of time looked different from the sun versus the earth. This is the great Copernican revolution. The key feature was that the sun squatter, somebody sitting on the sun, saw time dilated because the light was coming from his relative position as opposed to an earth-centric man sitting on earth. How and, and then processing how light had come to him. So where Kant used this whole argument of the Copernican uh, flipping, you know, the role of the agent in understanding where light comes from and the speed of it, where Kant used that to explain the subjective, and I'll now use my word, endojective, self-aware placement of space and time into the world as features of the senses, not the objects being sensed. So Einstein took Newton's inverse square law involving, of course, matter and gravity. And, and what did he do with it? Right? He imagined it from the sun versus the earth thinking about Copernicus through Kant. So he realized that Maxwell's electromagnetic theory would predict that light as was a constant speed and a vector would need to be offset by the mass of the sun itself, which was known to be several orders of magnitude, of course, larger than Earth. So hence, since light would be bent in the vortex, so would its velocity 
which is basically a measure of the mass movement per unit time. So space and time, therefore, in relativity, what, 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 what comes from this is that space and time would be different for the man on the sun versus the man on the earth. Hence, special relativity is born. Mind you, the synthesis using Kant from Copernicus to Einstein is my own interpretation. I piece it together after a very close rereading of one of the of the source that I use, the Critique of Pure Reason, which of course is published first version uh, in 1781 by uh, Emmanuel Kant. Okay, so you get you get now where we're where I'm coming from. Okay, so now. There's a contemplative paradox that we all of us humans know. And the contemplative paradox, what that's used for is basically it's used in light of trying to generate a clever human ordering. So this is a clever human invention. And who first really described it in detail was this other pre-Socratic philosopher named Zeno. And Zeno offers some rather troubling examples of what we call paradox. So remember Zeno was an Eleatic philosopher of antiquity. Uh, Zeno liked to create logical paradoxes, of course, that meant to demonstrate that motion was meaningless and unfounded and basically even impossible. Okay. He undermined the atomists like Democritus, who wanted to talk about particles and the void, right? And between them, and as Zeno would argue, since space and time were infinitely divisible, you could never get from one place to another or experience one moment to the next. So every time, according to Zeno's paradox here, you proceed and you cover half the distance, you will somewhere, halfway actually, cover half that distance again. And thus, half that distance, and onward and onward, onward into an infinitely downward spiraling reductio ad absurdum. Okay? So this is Zeno's paradox. Now, of course, the first person to take on that paradox was Aristotle. So he's saying that that in the time, like space, also has the potential to be divided ad infinitum, except that it can never be infinitely reduced. And so what, what, what Aristotle figured out is that infinity is basically a concept. It's neither a physical nor a metaphysical reality. And that's a way not to solve the paradox of Zeno, but to refute that it is even a paradox. Because there's no paradox. Because infinity is a concept. It's not a reality. Okay, So, he, so categorizing, categorizing concepts by using ideas that are generated by the faculty of the imagination, allow you to get to that grounding epistemology, like how we use knowledge to then ultimately find a metaphysic. So I'm gonna leave you with that today um, because we've just about finished with our half an hour time slot and that's how much time I allot to these um, authentic biochemistry lectures. We're gonna to get to part three soon. So this is Dr. Dan Guerra on the Ides of March 2020, uh, wishing you a very pleasant Sunday afternoon and saying bye for now.